Do take a seat. And um, we're in a new series this term following uh, the life of Moses. We're just going to do four weeks. Uh, two, uh, if you were here last week, uh, Paul kicked it off last week, and we're doing one this week, and then two more just in a few weeks' time. But last week, if you were here or if you caught up uh, on the sermon online, and I'd really encourage you to do that, to go online and to catch up, keep abreast of sermons if you've uh, missed out on a Sunday, um, we heard how God proved to Moses that he's a God who is faithful, He's a faithful God, he's an almighty God, and he's a rescuing God. That's what we heard last week. And the challenge to us was to trust God's promises rather than to trust our own feelings, uh, to uh, fear God rather than fear those around us, and to pursue God's agenda rather than our own, to find that holy discontent that, uh, that won't let us go, that stirs us up and launches us into action. A little bit as uh, Phil was just expressing about his holy discontent for those children who are left without a home for good. And that final challenge, the, that finding that holy discontent, is the one we're going to stay with this week as we meet Moses at the burning bush. So would you turn in your Bibles to Exodus? Uh, Exodus chapter 3, you'll find it on page 59. And I'm just going to read the first part of this chapter. Moses and the burning bush. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptian, Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So here we are in front of the burning bush. 
the place where God calls Moses out of his ordinary, familiar existence into something quite extraordinary and quite unfamiliar. Here he is on Mount Horeb. Just imagine it, a thorny patch of mountainous wasteland. I mean, Horeb means desolate, a place where nothing but thorns grow. Uh, we might call it a God-forsaken place, the far side or the backside of the desert. And Moses had probably been up there hundreds of times before, leading his sheep, but this time he discovers it's far from God-forsaken. You know, this place has been holy all along, and he never realized it until God catches his attention with a bush on fire that won't burn up. And suddenly Moses realizes he's on holy ground. And for the first time in 40 years, he hears God's voice calling his name, Moses, Moses. And Moses' first response is a good one. Here am I, he says. But then he hears the enormity of the task that God has in mind for him. I'm sending you to Pharaoh, back to Egypt, to bring my people, the Israelites, out. And all his old fears and insecurities rise to the surface. And instead of, here am I, his response becomes, who am I? You know, who am I that, to do such a thing? Whoa. He's been out of Egypt for a long time. And his 40-year inferiority complex makes him resist God. And let's be clear, inferiority isn't the same as humility. Inferiority shows that we're more struck by the size of our own, our own weakness than the size of God's greatness. And we argue with God that we're not worthy, we're, we're not able. It becomes all about us. And all God is waiting for is to hear us say, I'm here, Lord. Here am I. Use me. Send me. You know, just set me on fire for you. Give me, you know, the love, the hope, the vision, the passion, the faith, whatever is needed for the task. You see, the burning bush becomes for Moses the conquest of his inferiority. Who am I, he says. And I wonder how many of us relate to that question of Moses. Who am I? Moses thinks he has to be somebody. And inferiority always comes to that, back to that place of, who am I? Because the root of inferiority is pride. And, and that may surprise you. But pride is when it's all about you, whether you think too highly of yourself or too little of yourself. And don't you love God's simple answer, his five-word cure to an inferiority complex? I will be with you. I will be with you. That's all we need to know. God tells Moses that he's going to use him to deliver Israel. And Moses' response is, you know, I can't do that. I can't do it. And God says, Moses, read my lips. I didn't ask you to do it. That's my job. I am who I am. We'll do it. But I choose you to be my instrument. That's the way it works. I mean, just imagine for a moment that you have a fishing rod in your hands, okay? A fishing rod that can talk. And you say to the rod, you're going to catch fish for me. And the rod replies, oh, no, oh, no, 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 not me. I, I can't catch fish. You know, I can't, I, can't, I can't bait my own hook. I can't cast my own line. I, I can't see where the fish are. I can't reel my, reel my line in. Oh, sorry, I, you know, I just can't do that. And you say back to the rod, look, don't worry. I'll be with you. 
You're simply an instrument in my hands. I'm the one who's doing the fishing. We'll do this together. Do you see? God says to Moses and the same thing, and he says the same to you and me. I will be with you. And when we truly believe that, we see that it's not all about us. It's not about the skill or otherwise of the instrument. It's not all about us. No. What's of vital importance is that the instrument is intimately connected and available to the master. Now, in his early years in Egypt, Moses believed that he was someone special, that he was born for a purpose. He was proud and independent. I mean, he was part of the royal family, for goodness sake. Forty years in the desert as a shepherd emptied Moses of that self-confidence. At the burning bush, he found his true significance, a renewed intimacy and dependence on God, a, a reason for living. But it's a hard transition. He's still battling with his old doubts and fears. And so we find him, even at the beginning of chapter 4, still bleating, still doubting. What if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? Moses had every reason to believe that the Israelites wouldn't listen to him when he goes back. I mean, what credentials does he bring with him? In those early days, he had his titles and his degrees, his status. He had every re reason back then to believe that they'd accept him as their leader, to follow him. He was somebody back then. But they didn't. Not even then. They rejected him. Now, 40 years later, he's coming back to them as a rather worn-out, weather-beaten old shepherd. I mean, is there any reason to think that they'll listen to him now? He fears not. And so we have this long conversation through chapter 3 and into chapter 4 where Moses voices all his fears and objections. I'm too weak. I'm too ignorant. I'm too unconvincing. I'm too tongue-tied. I'm, I'm, I'm too ordinary for the job. Just turn over to chapter 4. Let's read a few verses. Moses answered God, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. And the Lord said, throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you. What's that in your hand, God asked him? A staff, most replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Now, what's going on here? What is all this staff business? The staff would have been with Moses at all times. And it represented four important things in his life. First of all, it represented his identity as a shepherd. You know, it's the very obvious symbol of his role as a shepherd. Secondly, his income. All he owned was tied up in sheep, invested in his flock. Uh, thirdly, his influence. He would use the staff to move his sheep from one place to another, you know, by hook or by crook. They know who's boss with that in his hand. And fourthly, his security. His staff was one of the few things that gave him a sense of security. And God is telling him to throw it down. And you can imagine Moses' reply, but God, but God you, you don't understand how important this is to me. Throw it down, Moses. 
But Lord, you know, I use it to herd the sheep, you know, to keep my balance, uh, to fight off uh, wild dogs and lions and throw it down, Moses. But, but Lord, I throw it down, Moses. And it may seem like a small thing to us, but the one thing that Moses had that made him feel self-assured was the one thing that God asked him to throw down. Moses had to throw down the one thing he had left that made him feel strong. He had to take the last of his self-assurance and literally throw it at God's feet. Lay down his identity, his income, his influence, his security. Now for a moment, just think about the things in your life that give you confidence. Is it maybe your personality or the way you look or some gift or ability? Is it maybe your status in the community or in your workplace or among your friends? Think about what you're really good at, what you're known for. Think about maybe what you depend on for acceptance or approval of others. What in your life makes you feel strong? And whatever it is in your life that makes you self-assured, God wants you to, to throw it down. Now, why do you think God would want you to do that? To let go of something that's essentially good and positive? Is God just wanting to make us feel weak and inadequate? The Lord said to Moses, throw it on the ground. And he threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Now, Moses was no stranger to snakes. I mean, he's been living in the desert for 40 years. He was living in prime snake country. Why do you think he ran? I mean, maybe he was just surprised, or maybe the snake meant something to Moses. The snake represented something. It represented the power of Egypt and was worshipped by the Egyptians. I mean, the pharaoh, even on his his crown, had the, the sign of a cobra. Maybe Moses was reminded of that, and that's what he ran from. You know, Lord, don't make me go back there. Don't make me do that. Don't make me go back. And then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Take a snake by the tail. I mean, what, do you think I was born yesterday? Everyone knows you don't pick up a snake by the tail. So why did God tell, specifically tell Moses to do that? He could have just told him to pick it up. But why by the tail? You'd never pick up a snake by the tail unless you knew for certain that it wouldn't turn around and bite you. And that was precisely God's point. He was telling Moses that he could trust him and that he would protect him from Pharaoh. And the important part of this little exchange between them was that God was asking Moses to trust him by picking up the snake in that way. And almost every little scene uh, scene in this Moses story brings us back to faith. Because more than anything, God wants us to love him and trust him. And so he'll often put us in places where we learn that gift of faith again. He'll continually test our trust in him. So we may lose our job, and he'll ask us to trust him. We may lose someone close to us, and he'll ask us to trust him. We may fail at something we thought was ours for the taking, and he'll ask us to trust him. He may give us a task way beyond our own abilities because he wants us to trust him. He may ask us to pick up a snake by the tail 
do something totally against our reasonable judgment because he's asking us to trust him. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake. And what happens? It turns back into a staff in his hand. And let's not miss the symbolism here. Moses throws his staff on the ground. He lays down all those things that bring him a sense of his own security, his identity, his worth, his income, his influence. It becomes a snake representing all the power and might of Egypt. And that's not insignificant. All that we're afraid to face, all that we fear might overwhelm us or happen to us. But then at God's direction, Moses reaches out and takes hold of the snake in such a way as to be made completely vulnerable, unable to protect himself. You see, he places himself totally in God's hands. And then God turns the snake back into a staff, giving back to Moses that thing that was so meaningful and important to him. But now, and this is the key thing, now it's no longer Moses' staff. Now, it's the rod of God. From that moment on, it's never referred to again as Moses' staff. It's the rod of God. And with that rod, Moses does miraculous deeds. Do you remember? With that rod, he brings about the ten plagues that release the people of Israel from slavery. With that rod, he splits the Red Sea. With that rod, he touches the Nile River and it turns into blood. And with that rod, he hits the rock and water gushes out. And God says to Moses and to each one of us, if you give me, if you give me what you've got, if you give me whatever's in your hand, and if you'll lay it down, if you'll lay down your identity, tell me it's not about you anymore. If you'll lay down your income, tell me it's not about what you own anymore, what you have. If you lay down your influence, tell me it's not about your ego and what you can achieve anymore. If you'll lay down those things that give you a a false sense of security and tell me you'll trust me alone. If you lay these things down, just as Moses laid down his staff, God says to us, I will make it come alive in ways you've never imagined and never experienced before. Paul and I came to St. Mark's just over 30 years ago. Ten years into our ministry here, I came to a place of very near burnout. Uh, we'd just thrown ourselves into the work. I mean, we, we were so excited. We were so passionate for it. But we had no boundaries, no safeguards. We had a very young family, and we became exhausted. I was exhausted. And a number of other things contributed to it, as often overload does. Just other things come along. We had a child, one of our children had to have extensive hospital treatment. And then both our fathers died very suddenly within six months of each other. And that was complete overload. But the root of my problem wasn't any of those things. The root of my problem was independence, pride, and perfectionism. No one else's fault but my own. And God began to put his finger on those things. And we went on sabbatical for six months, and I literally had to lay down almost all of the stuff that gave me a sense of worth, of who I was, of of who I was. And throughout those six months away, God spoke to me very clearly and very intensely over each of those particular issues. Um, Someone gave me Oswald Chambers' daily readings, my utmost for his highest. And every day, God spoke to me through them. And he began to change me. 
change how I felt about myself, change how I looked, viewed things. And I came back different, not perfect, but different. So what's in your hand? Just lay it down, whatever it is, and say, say the words, Lord, use me, take me, use all that I am. Use me for your purposes, not my own, and just see what he'll do. And it seems that right through Scripture, God's been teaching his people the same message. What's in your hand? Whatever you're holding, if you give it to me, I can use it in a way you've never imagined, never seen before. I mean, just think about it. The Lord told Joshua to march around Jericho seven times doing what? Blowing a ram's horns. Blowing ram's horns. I mean, I can hear Joshua saying, Lord, how on earth are we going to defeat Jericho? You know, the walls are so high. The enemy is so strong. And God responding by saying, what have I put in your hands? Ram's horns. When David took on Goliath, just imagine him asking God how on earth he could defeat this giant. And again, God saying, what do you have in your hand, David? And David looks down at this simple little sling. And Jesus asks the little boy, what do you have in your hands? Just five loaves and two fishes. That'll do. That's enough. It's all I need, he says, to feed 5,000 people. And Moses here is now equipped with the rod of God. But God knows that he's going to have to face not only his external demons, the Pharaoh, but also his internal demons, his fear of rejection, his fear of humiliation and of failure, his sinful, unbelieving heart. And so the Lord says to him, verse 6, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous, like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, God said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out again, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Now what we've got to understand is that in the Bible, leprosy is symbolic of sin. So Moses put his heart, hand to his heart, and it comes out dirty. It represents who Moses is, sinful and unbelieving. And then he puts it back inside his cloak, and it comes out restored, healthy. This is who Moses will become. But he's not that man yet. You see, he spent 40 years tending sheep, living a mundane, very ordinary existence, uh, probably nursing his wounds from the failure and disappointment when he had to flee from Egypt. He's probably got used to just getting through one day after another. Tedious tasks, small goals, relentless demands. He's where, he's where many of us live. The land of making it through until Friday. And that's the way life was for Moses until the burning bush. And that why, that's why it takes quite a long time to move him. You see, he's been living in a distant land for a long time. And he's adopted foreign customs and ungodly ways of thinking. As far as we know, he hadn't encountered God for the whole time he'd been there. He'd been far away, leading a small life with small aspirations. And that's why it doesn't all disappear in one moment. He's adopted a worldly mindset that will take some shifting. And for many of us who feel we've got lost in the land of making it through until Friday... It will take some time, some persistence to change things. And we'll need to make hard choices. The laying down, the picking up, the handing over, 
of our agenda, our ambitions, our self-importance. You see, this is a pivotal moment in Moses' life, and there are moments like this for each one of us. God takes Moses out of the land of Midian, where he'd just been eking out a hand-to-mouth existence in the land of making it through until Friday. And God gives him a vision of a promised land. And he renews Moses' passion for the people he'd left behind 40 years ago. A passion that isn't just now a momentary flash of indignation and anger that goes nowhere. But a passion that's strong and enduring. A passion that will lead a complaining and rebellious people through the desert for another 40 years. Because God has given him a vision of the promised land. So what does your life look like at the moment? Does it have a God-given purpose and direction? Or is it rather aimlessly going from week to week, living in the land of making it through until Friday? I mean, Paul encouraged us last week to purposefully look for a cause, a cause that will grab our hearts and capture our imagination, that, that won't let us go, that maybe even keeps us awake at night, that takes us out of the awful, pointless mundanity of simply making it through until Friday. Something that inspires us to offer what's in our hands to God and allow him to use it in a new and powerful way. And just as we heard from Phil earlier, his passion for this, home, for this charity, Home for Good, you can feel how it's gripped him, how it's become his thing. And if we don't know what that thing is for us, if we haven't yet found that sort of holy discontent, then we need to keep asking God. Ask him for our own burning bush experience, an internal firestorm that won't be put out, that shares God's frustration with the world we live in, shares God's heart for people who are lost or broken or isolated or oppressed. And our prayer should be, Lord, Take us out. Please take us out of the land of living it through to Friday. And take us into the land of promise, where we can be the people you always meant us to be. Shall we stand? And let's make our own personal prayer to God. But the words we sang in a song earlier are very relevant to this. We sang this, holy, holy, there is no one like you, God. There is none beside you. And Lord, we pray that you would open up our eyes in wonder. Show us who you are. Fill us with your heart and lead us in your love to those around us. And Lord, we make that our prayer this morning. We pray that you would give us, give us your heart for the world around us. Show us where you can take what's in our hand and make it something unique, something special, something extraordinary. As you use us, work through us. And Lord, our plea is that we shouldn't lead an aimless, pointless, mundane life. Take us out of the land of living it living it through to Friday and take us into the land of promise where we can see 
your hand at work through us, even us, Lord. Who am I? Who am I? But thank you that you choose us. We are your instruments, Lord. Amen. My hope is...